Israel? No, uh, Israel was the name that is that the people had when they went into the land. When uh, after the land was called Judah, right? No, it was called Israel. Uh, when um, after Solomon's reign and the and the and the northern tribes seceded, then the northern tribes were called variously Israel or Ephraim, and the southern tribe was called Judah. But it's interesting when you get into Ezra and Nehemiah, he starts talking about the people of Judah as Israel. So, and 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 when the people gather to worship, it's all Israel. So Israel has become again a name for the people that are in the land. So it's a broad term. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you know now Jesus is considered the Lion of Judah. Yeah. Well, he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah because that's his his tribal descent. Uh, but uh, th- so um, God has promised, and we shall see this very shortly. God has promised that he Israel that he's going to deal in what. Our translations are now using steadfast love to communicate. Uh, The term is kind of a dual term, and there's no one English word that will translate it. It involves two things. It it involves an emotional uh, 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 component, and it it involves um, an act of the will. I, I don't have a lot of willpower over my emotions. Yes? Are you with me here? Not have either less willpower. Willpower over my emotions. So, so but, but chesed has both a uh, volitional aspect to it. God willed to enter into relationship with Israel. Yes? And he deals in love. So some have called this loyalty love in order to get the two sides together. But that's kind of a cumbersome English expression, so the ESV is using steadfast love, and it's not a bad rendering of this word. It seems seems to me that it's not circumscribed just to the relationship between God and man, but it also permeates, it's a principle that permeates in all the relationships among his people too, right? Yeah, uh, yes, and and, uh, that that we won't deal with tonight. (laughs) Chesed is never practiced by humans toward God, only of God toward humans or human to human. Uh, That's true and not true. This is from Gordon Clark. It's true and not true because God says in Hosea, yes, it's in Hosea chapter 4, that that Israel has no chesed. They they have no steadfast love for God. Um, Chesed is often paired with other terms. faithfulness. So you will often see steadfast love and faithfulness. These words in Hebrew can be translated truth, uh, but faithfulness is a much more common meaning of the terms than, than truth. It's often paired with rachamim mercy that we looked at uh, some while ago. Rachamim, the Root of rachamim is a word rechem that means womb, and the, um, the 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 basic idea of the of the word mercy in this in this sense is the mother's yearning to help a sick a sick child. 
how a mother is moved. She, there's just nothing. Uh, you, maybe you can't do anything, but you, neither can you do nothing. So you get up and walk the baby all night. Yes? Yes. Um, can I ask a question? Sure. Going back to your first slide, steadfast love. I said it's never practiced by humans toward God, only of God to humans or human to humans. Yeah. Why is it we don't practice it to God? I, the scriptures are not do not commonly call Israel to act in chesed toward God. Um, why, I don't know. Uh, uh, Hosea is going to say your chesed is like the morning dew. It, it melts away with the, with the rising of the sun. Um, it's often linked with, with justice, mishpat, which is an odd notion, steadfast love and justice. <laughs> but we, we will see a little bit of that, of that as we go. It's linked a few times with righteousness, uh, with plenteous redemption in, Proverbs, in Psalm 130, verse 7, and with keeping covenant in Nehemiah 1, 5. When God exercises, when we say that God is a God of chesed, it means that he keeps his covenant. Are you with me here? Um, so Exodus 34, 6. Now, now God's going to, you know this story, uh, show me your glory. You can't see my face and live, but there's a, there's a, a, a cleft in the rock nearby. I will hide there and I will put my hand over you and I will pass by and I will declare my glory to you and you may see my back. God ain't got no back, but, but folks, the one thing, when I was away from Jan for eight weeks in basic training, uh, when I came home, the last thing I wanted to look at it was her back. <laughs> I wanted her face. Yes? yes. Well, folks, as you, as you hear this passage, Exodus 34, verses 6 and following, as you watch this, read it, hear it, remember this is just the back of God, the least interesting part of God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We talked about that a week or two ago, so I won't go back over that tonight. But the, the larger issue is this is what Yahweh means. When you think about the Lord, this is what you should think of. And this is his back. Uh, what's more important to us than his faithfulness and his forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, and sin? Yes? Yes? But that's his back. What, what will happen when we see him as he is? How, how will we respond? If this is the back of God. Uh, so this is the explanation of what the name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, means. Um, Nehemiah 9.17. In spite of Israel's sin... I've added this, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. The God you serve abounds in steadfast love. One of the implications of that is that you can count on his forgiveness. Uh, Let me talk about forgiveness just a minute here. When we sin, we feel guilty. Yes? If we're healthy, we feel guilty. Um, But, brothers and sisters, I want to point out something to you. There are two kinds of guilt. Uh, One... um, And I had terms for them this afternoon, but I can't find them this evening. (laughs) Two two kinds of guilt. One is my personal sense of guiltiness, blameworthiness. The other is liability to penalty. Yes? Um, The work of Christ has paid my penalty. Yes? Yes? How many of you have been told that when, when, you are, when you have sinned, you need to go through a really thorough uh, repentance? Have you been taught anything like that? Let me, let me suggest to you that the New Testament doesn't teach that. What it teaches is that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sin. And, the, and in Hebrews... It's our conscience that he cleanses. How long after my sin do I have to wait for him to clean clean my conscience? Bill? I was watching a video today, and the guy was saying that repentance is a work. That repentance is not from us. Repentance comes from God to us. But there, there's something to that. Well, I, if I may leave that to other conversations, um, what I'd like to stay with is this issue. How long do you have to feel guilty before the blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience? It doesn't matter. You're cleansed. I can, I can, no, I'm not, because I still have this guilty, defiled conscience. So I can grovel in it, but I'll tell you what groveling in sin in, in your guilt will do for you. Nothing good. Then, folks, I have discovered, I, I discovered that teaching in class one day. I was in Hebrews and read, read the passage. Uh, if the blood of goats and bulls and the uh, ashes of a heifer... Um, I can't quote. I can't quote it now. Hebrews chapter ten. Um, um, is that ten? Um, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, where in the world is that? Ah, there it is. It's in chapter 9, verse 13. 
Um, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who are defiled sanctifies to the cleansing of the flesh. Now he's talking about the sin offering under the old covenant. Uh, When you're defiled, you bring a sin offering. Sin offering would be better called a purification offering. And you sprinkle the blood of the animal on the the defiled person and, and the defilement's removed. If that's true, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal covenant offered himself, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Folks, you can't serve with a defiled conscience. Uh, because you, you think you're unworthy. Well, folks, you were unworthy before you sinned. <laughs> you're unworthy after you cleansed. But the cleansing, of the, of the, the cleansing power of the blood of Christ surely is greater than the cleansing power of a goat or a bull. And if that's the case, who am I to go on and nurse my guilt in light of the sacrifice of Jesus? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, that, that again is, a, is a, a long discussion I'd like to put off, but let me give you a, a, just a brief unsatisfactory answer. <laughs> uh, all obedience apart from faith is dead works. Uh, rabbis are keeping the law, they think. Yes? Yes? But they're not getting the blessings of God. That are, that are enumerated in, in the Mosaic Covenant that they treasure. So why aren't they getting them? And the answer is, because it's not by faith. Yes, sir. How long, if you're engaged in remorse um, about sin, and yeah. you come to the Lord, but then how long is it before that actually comes to sin? I don't know. Yeah, in a sense, it, it's, it is... A, you should feel remorse when you sin, okay? But you shouldn't continue in it because you're saying, Jesus, I've got to grieve long enough before I'm worthy for you to cleanse my conscience. And that's sinful. Just to make you more guilty. <laughs> but, but I have discovered, folks, it, the moment you become aware of sin, you can... You can plead, plead. You can ask God for the cleansing power, or better, don't ask Him for it. He didn't say ask for it. He says He's done it. Then claim what God's promise is, and act as if God has done exactly what He said. And I have found that my conscience just simply doesn't bother me as much as it used to. Uh, there was a hand further back. I thought, Chago, go ahead. Many years ago, I read the book by Watchman Nee, the, the Normal Christian Life, the mm-hmm. study of Romans. Mm-hmm. And he said that when we revel in that guilt, yeah. we are devaluing. Yes. We devalue the blood of the yeah. cross. My guilt feelings are more important eternally than the blood of Christ is. Yeah. We've got to make some decisions about these things, Ethan. Uh, there's a town where I was struggling with a repeated sin. Yeah. I ended up like keeping count of how many times I did it in a week. Yeah. 
and it came to the point where the more I kept count, the more I ended up falling back into yeah. it because I kept feeling guilty about yeah. it. But then I remember, I started thinking about, the Bible says God keeps no record of your sin. Yeah. Once he's forgiven it. Well, I don't know that it says that, but. Well, but, I don't know if it says that exactly. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's basically hinting at that he, he is forgiven and forgotten. Yeah. That well, he, yeah, in a sense, we're, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there to receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So there's still a record, but he's not bringing it up to make us miserable. He's bringing it up to honor Christ, to show what was what we really deserved and what Jesus really paid for each one of us. Can you please repeat what you said this morning about Oh, I've said that before. I, I don't want to go into it now because I want to get on with steadfast love. Uh, uh, Genesis nineteen nineteen. Uh, this is uh, Lot. This is Lot who lived in Sodom. This is Lot speaking. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great, and here it is, kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Why did God give Chesed to Lot? Did Abraham flee for him? No. He didn't flee for him? No, he didn't. No, that wasn't for... Turn to Genesis 18. This is important. We've... We've said that to each other for years. I, I was taught this when I was a kid. Um, but Genesis 18, look at what, what uh, Abraham is concerned about. Genesis 18, verse uh, uh, 27. Let's see, is that where it is? No, 22. So the men turned from there and went to Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then... Uh, the rabbis tell us that the original text read, the Lord stood before Abraham, but they changed it because that's a demeaning position. In Hebrew, to stand before someone means to act as a servant. So they changed it that Abraham stood before the Lord. But let's restore that original wording, the Lord stood before Abraham. Why does he do that? Well, in other places, God calls Abraham his friend. Yes? Well, what do friends do? Well, they, can, they, ask, they ask the other to do something and they do it. And the other asks the, the one to, and he does it. God has, God is taking a position, ask me what you want. What does he ask for? Um, Verse uh, 23, then, the, then uh, uh, Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do the, uh, such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous f- fare as the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do just? What's he asking for? 
No, he's not asking for mercy. He's asking for a demonstration of the true justice of God. He's concerned that God will be, be thought unjust because he, 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 he takes away the righteous with the wicked. The whole concern of Abraham in this passage, he never mentions Lot once. The whole concern is the reputation of God. And because God is standing before Abraham, he negotiates him down to 10. Look at the, look at the very last of it. Uh, verse 31, he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, And here, watch this. Oh, let not the Lord be angry. <laughs> uh, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And this is the end of the conversation, and here's why. Verse 33, uh, or verse uh, 32, then he said, I'm sorry, verse uh, 32, he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it, and the Lord went his way. So I'm not going to go, I'm not going to let this go any further, the Lord says, in effect. Well, he's, Abraham is doing what godly people ought to do intercede with God about God's own character. <laughs> Am I making sense to you? When you read the Psalms, uh, David, when he prays his lament Psalms, as when he's in trouble, he's talking to God about God's own promises to him and God's own character. And he wants God's character to be known even among the wicked so, so Abraham is negotiating not for the life of, Abra- of, of, of Isaac, but for the reputation of God. Do you see this? Of Lot. So here, why did God extend chesed to Lot? Because of his relationship with Abraham. Yes, sir. He's arguing, okay, so he's arguing with God about God's reputation, yeah. but he's arguing against part of the personality of God which is wrath. <laughs> and so he's trying to, so his position is trying to convince God that mercy should trump his well, wrath. He, he, and, I, but that's still a characteristic of God. That may be, in fact, what's in Abraham's mind, but theologically that's not sound. Wrath. I hate that I know. I, I, no, 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 no. It's, it's uh, no, don't, don't feel that way. Uh, the, I don't think that about you. Um, God's wrath is both just and merciful but at the same time. They found Lot a just man. That's why Lot wasn't destroyed. That's not in the text. It's because of his relationship with Abraham. Because Lot is actually, has actually spiritually... Lot is actually spiritually compromised. When he left Abraham, he camped toward Sodom. When the angels get there, I'm sorry, yes, when the angels get there, he's sitting in the gate in Sodom. He's one of the rulers of the city and has a, has a house in the city, which means he's a very powerful man in the city. How did he get power among such, rich, such wicked people? He's compromised. So he's not a particularly righteous man, but God does... Folks, why did Jesus save you? I'm sorry, <laughs> gave away the answer. Why does God save you? It's for the sake of Jesus. 
He doesn't save you for your sake. He saves us for Jesus' sake. It sounds like another time in the Bible when the majority is not true. <sighs> so, uh, Genesis 20, 40, uh, 24, 12, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, this is um, the uh, servant of Abraham at uh, the well outside of Haran. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master. The servant doesn't necessarily have a relationship with God, but Abraham does, and Abraham has a covenant with God, and being in covenant, God has bound himself to act in steadfast love. He has bound himself to act in steadfast love. I, I, I can't understand why he would do that. Uh, Numbers 14, 18, at Kadesh Barnea. This is when the people refused to go into the land. What was there in the land that was so scary? They had seen the ten plagues in Egypt. They had seen the Red Sea parted. They had seen the Egyptian army destroyed. They had seen the gift of water and food in the wilderness for a year. What is there in Canaan that's so frightening? It's because they haven't been paying attention to the past. They haven't learned that, uh, uh, that, that God's past is his character. So, um, in, even in Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Here we have this same thing from Exodus 34. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And God listened to Moses. Why? Because it was God's will anyway. Why didn't, didn't God know what he was going to do with Israel at Kadesh Barnea? Yes? Didn't he know that? Then why did he tell Moses, get out of my way and I'll destroy them and make a great nation out of you? Why? We're learning what true leadership looks like and what a Messiah looks like. He will sacrifice everything for the people of God. So Moses becomes a model of Jesus in these events. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 8. It is not because you are so numerous that the Lord is going to give you the land, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers. Why is he being faithful to Israel? Because of the fathers. He made an oath. He gave an oath to Abraham. He must fulfill that oath. Or he violates his very character and demonstrates that he's no true God at all. Um, so essentially, everything that happened all down through yeah. the centuries is because of the love and the, of the Father. Mm -hmm. 
and God's steadfast love in fulfilling his covenant that he made to the fathers, but also with the seed. So um, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant. And notice here the linking of keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Folks, you may count on the, the, the forgiveness of God. You may count on the cleansing power of his blood for your conscience. You may count on enablement for service. You may count on steadfastness in the midst of hardship because God has sworn himself to Jesus and he will not break his oath. And having sworn himself to Jesus, then he must be faithful to Jesus' people. Say again. Hallelujah. <sighs> this is some shouting ground, isn't it? Now, this is Central Church, and you don't do a lot of shouting. And I just did some. You'll forgive me. But, uh, <laughs> but, but he goes on. He goes on in Deuteronomy 7.12. Uh, and because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to, to your fathers. Now there it sounds very much like you have to obey to get the steadfast love of God. But I point out something to you because I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary and I know great and wise things most people don't know that... Um, Chapter 7, verse 8, comes before 7, 12. <laughs> and we just read it. Know therefore that, he, that, um, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, keeping oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. 7.12 then is not adding a new condition to the fulfillment. Folks, their obedience is the way to enjoy the blessings of God. But it's not the reason they get it. The problem of Deuteronomy is that we... we what have you been told when you were in vacation Bible school, when they explained the name Deuteronomy to you, what did they say? It's a, it's a repeat of the law. Yeah, second giving of the law. And so we go to Deuteronomy and we see all the laws, and there they are. What do you do? I mean, it's, it's laws. But we ignore chapters 1 and 2, and we ignore chapters 29 to 34. Generally speaking, what a writer values most, he puts at the beginning of his message and at the end. And the, and the end should be circling back to the beginning. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you? So the, the beginning of the message is, the Lord did not set his affection on you because you were more numerous than all the nations of the earth. We just read this. You were the fewest of all nations. And another place in those opening chapters, 
Moses says to the people, the Lord didn't set his affection on you because, you, because of your righteousness, for, for you have been rebellious since the day I have known you. And he repeats that in chapters 29, 30, 31. So what's the solution? Uh, There are some odd passages in Deuteronomy uh, 2, 1 and 2. You stop and talk about the Moabites and how they got their land and and the Lumim, how they got their land. Well, why do I care? The answer is, because God was able to give people who don't even have a covenant with him, was able to give them land, he, he's able to give you land too. And he will say about at least one of those, uh, their land was filled with great cities fortified up to the sky. That was what Israel was afraid of. These are great fortified cities. How do we take such a city? Well, didn't you see Jericho? Not, not in Deuteronomy yet, they haven't. <laughs> But Jericho should have been the solution to the whole problem. But it wasn't. So that by the end of Joshua, uh, Joshua has two sermons at the end of the book. In a sense, uh, Old Testament scholars have talked, you you know the word Pentateuch, yes? The five books of Moses. Uh, Scholars have begun to talk about the Hexateuch. So that in a sense, the story of Jericho Genesis to Deuteronomy is not uh, is continued in Joshua, and it's told the same way. So it's, it, it fundamentally is telling the same story that was in Genesis to Deuteronomy, and in in Joshua, the second sermon, his last words to Israel, he says, uh, uh, "You will not be able to serve the Lord your God. He is a righteous God. He will not he will not forgive your your iniquity and your sins." If you turn away to, to the idols, he will, he will wipe you out. And the people say, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says to them, you are therefore witnesses against yourselves. What does it mean to be a witness against? Self-incrimination. Self-incrimination. You, you're witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord. Therefore, put away the gods that are among you. This is after the conquest. What are they doing with gods in the camp? They're already toiling with, I'm sorry, sorry, toying, toying with idolatry. As they're conquering the land of Canaan by the power of God, they're toying with idolatry. You see the problem with Israel? The problem is not that they're disobedient. The problem is that they really have no heart for God and they don't have, as Moses will say, you don't have eyes to see, ears to hear, or a heart to understand. Yes? <laughs> Did God choose the most obstinate people just so that yeah. there was a bit of a challenge? So, so, so let, me, let me just point out, look around the room. <laughs> <laughs> Don't point any fingers. Because you know the old saying, if you got one pointing that way, I got three pointing back at me. So 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 just, <laughs> so folks this this covenant love for God, the steadfast love of God is even for sinful people. 
he, he lets sin go on until he becomes, he, he's on the, on the threshold of looking unjust and not dealing with it. This is the best I can do to explain what God does, what I see in Scripture. God lets Israel go how many centuries? Well, David comes to the throne about 1010 B.C., and the southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So that is 426 years. 426 years in which David commits adultery and murder, a political murder. He's the one who is the chief agent of justice in Israel, and he, com- he commits political murder. Yes? And he's not put to death. Solomon starts out well, but he's, his heart's turned away by his wives. Yes? Uh, and he, he doesn't raise his son to be a godly king. What David almost surely did for Solomon, if you read Proverbs, and if you believe, as I do, that Solomon wrote Proverbs, that he's responsible for a substantial part of it because he didn't write all of it because the men of Hezekiah's day did some and so forth. But, but he did a, a substantial portion of the book of, of Proverbs, and Proverbs is carrying out the agenda of Deuteronomy. And what God told Israel that they must do when they, when they choose a king, it must be one that God's chosen. And the king must write out for himself a copy of this law, and he must read it every day so that he will not exalt himself above his brothers. It's almost certain to me uh, Solomon is, is probably about 20 when he comes to the throne, which means that it's 20 years into David's reign that the Bathsheba event occurs. Are you with me here? So David has learned a a fearful lesson. I'm going to raise my son. I'm sure that he had Solomon copy out Deuteronomy and read it every day. And for a good part of his life, he followed the teachings of Deuteronomy, but eventually he turned away. Uh, but that would suggest that, Je- that, that his son, Jer- uh, not Jeroboam, who's his son? Rehoboam. Uh, Rehoboam is, is a fool from the beginning. Yes? He cannot hear wisdom. Why does God put off for 426 years the judgment of a kingdom who has about five good kings? Maybe six. I haven't counted them. I'm I'm making a guesstimate here. Because God puts off his wrath as long as he can do it without beginning to appear unjust. The best I can do to explain all this. It includes today. Uh, We're under the wrath of God according to Romans chapter 1. But we've been under the wrath of God for the last 60 years or so. Psalm 6, 1 to 5. O Lord God, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But Lord, you, how long? 
mind you, rebuke me not in your anger, discipline me not in your wrath. David has sinned. Yes? I thought God judged the sinners. Not under the Mosaic Covenant. Not under, rather, the Abrahamic Covenant. He has bound himself to David by not only the Abrahamic Covenant, but by the Davidic Covenant. And David must succeed. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Make it obvious that this was your work and you are a God of steadfast love and though I deserve nothing, you are doing exactly what your character requires for in death there is no remembrance of you and Sheol who will give you praise. You've never been at a graveside with the casket in the grave standing beside the graveside and heard praise coming out of the casket. You've never heard that. And that's what David is saying. Uh, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forgive me, for, forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have my sorrow in, in, sorrow in my heart all, all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Consider and answer me, O Lord. I'm sorry, I just read that. Verse 4. Lest my enemy say, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Notice that word shall rejoice. What's that mean? It's certainly coming. Question is when? I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word, word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. A day is coming and may be soon in our country where our adversaries will be at our right hand. And you need Psalm 17 as I do. Because in those days, folks, This is David praying. He has a covenant with God. Yes? This is David praying. He's in the Abrahamic covenant. Yes? So what? how can I use that psalm? Well, it's also a prayer for Jesus. Because the psalms is a, the book of psalms is a royal hymn book. (laughs) And it's teaching us 
how Messiah is going to relate to God. There are going to be enemies on every side. Yes? But Messiah is going to be able, is, is going to be able to count on the steadfast love of God. But you and I are so identified with Jesus that God knows our distinct personalities, but he does not see us apart from Jesus. So in John 17, uh, that you have loved them even as me. God loves you like he loves Jesus. And that's stunning to me. I'll, I'll never get over that. Um, and if he loves you like he loves Jesus, then you can play, pray Jesus' prayers too. Oh, Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, wondrously show your steadfast love. The psalm continues, keep me as the apple of your eye. What do you protect more? Well, <laughs> there are other answers. But what, what, what is most vulnerable in your upper body? Your eyes. We always wince or turn away from anything that's coming suddenly toward our face. Yes? Uh, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Folks, we're always in the shadow of his wings. I just can't feel it. But I have to trust it. Um... Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, for men by your hand, uh, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The Lord, so, so Psalm 17, a psalm of trust in the midst of terrible times where enemies are surrounding. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. <laughs> Why do sheep lie down in green pastures? Because hmm? they're full. <laughs> Are you with me? They're completely satisfied. Otherwise, they'd be grazing. Yes, they're ruminants. Uh, I'm sorry, they are, they are um, herbivores. And as such, they don't get enough protein to sustain their body just eating periodically. They have to eat all the time. So the only reason... A sheep would lie down in the midst of green grass is because they're full. Um, He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Um, Do you know the names Hale and Wilder? 
oh, they were two Metropolitan Opera stars who were Christians, and they did some marvelous songs. Oh, goodness, I wish I could play some of them for you. I don't have time tonight to do it, but uh, one of them was Psalm 23, and the way they sang it, the way the version was written, uh, uh, in, in paths of true righteousness, he bids me to take. That is, I'm going to do righteousness in these paths, is, is the b- burden of the words that they sang. That's not the point of this. Why would a... Pa- why, do, do you understand that, that um, righteousness is, is... One of the words for righteousness in Hebrew means to be straight, Why would a a shepherd lead his sheep on straight paths instead of crooked paths? Pardon? Less work. Less work. Well, yeah, he's taking them some things, but sometimes you've got to take a crooked path. So why would he choose a straight path rather than a crooked path? who was the who was the guy that wrote on Psalm, the a shepherd looks at the uh, the shepherd psalm? Who was that? Um, do you not remember that book? It was it was in the seventies, I think it came out. But he was he had been a shepherd and he wrote on uh, on Psalm twenty three. He said sheep are nearsighted, and if you lead them on crooked paths, some of the sheep are going to go astray. They're going to lose the, the the tail that's in front of them and go someplace else instead of going where they're supposed to go, and they, and they will be in danger. So you lead them on straight paths because he wants to be a good shepherd. Um, it's time to quit, but I have much more here. Psalm 33, Psalm 25. Go meditate on Psalm 25, Psalm 33. Oh, what a psalm that is. Um, psalm 51 you know the heading of Psalm 51? A psalm for the, for the director. When Nathan went into David after he had gone into Bathsheba. And David says, Have mercy, be gracious to me. Oh, mercy is wrong here. Have, be, be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. David has committed political murder, adultery. And he can still count on God's forgiveness. Are you with me? Psalm 51 had to have been written after he was forgiven. And here's why. When Nathan confronts him, you're the man. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Wait a minute, I got something I need to do. And he runs off to his office and he sits down and writes Psalm 51. Then he comes back and he says, what do you, what do you think, Nathan? Is that, Gad, is, is that how it worked? No. I have sinned against the Lord. And what's, what's the prophet's next word? The Lord has also taken away your sin. You will not die. The penalty, see, we talked about guilt feelings and liability to punishment. Yes? The liability to punishment is already paid. 
In the, in the latter part of Psalm 51, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be uh, converted unto you. Psalm 51 is the way he's teaching sinners about what God does. There is hope for a murderer. Worse, someone who uses the organs of government to commit murder. Worse, a man who uses the organs of God's, God's ordained government to commit murder. And he can still count on forgiveness from God. Why? Because he's in a covenant relationship with God and God is a God of steadfast love and he does not turn away. Uh, Romans 9.15, when Moses says here, he's quoting from uh, that Exodus passage that we looked at earlier, I will, show, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. This is the word elaos that we talked about earlier. This is steadfast mercy, steadfast love. And that, that word shows up in Romans first right here. And it does not last after chapter 11. So in chapter 12, you know the verse. Yes, 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the... It's a different word, not this word. Uh, so in, in Romans 9 to 11... He's arguing for a future for Israel because God is a God of steadfast love. And having bound himself to Israel, he cannot lose them. Brothers and sisters, having bound himself to you, he cannot lose you. Or he will no longer have the right to be called God. Um, so God is holy. Uh, let me say... Uh, uh, we'll talk about jealousy next week. Because God is a God of love, we looked at this last week. Because God is a God of steadfast love that we looked at tonight, he's also a God of jealousy. He has the right to be jealous. I have a right to be jealous over my wife. She has a right to be jealous over me. Now, there's a, there's a jaundiced jealous, jealousy. That's not what I'm talking about. My wife has the right to expect that I have her only in my affections. This is, no other woman has that place. My daughters don't have that. Yes? No other woman has that place. God has that right over us, and he's a jealous God. We'll look at his jealousy next week. Let's, let's close with prayer. Father, your steadfast love endures forever. And because of that, we will endure forever. Um, in our darkest moments, where we are most confronted with the sin that, that we ourselves are guilty of, bring to our minds again your steadfast love. And that in your steadfast love, you, you forgive those whom you have established a relationship with. We belong to Jesus and for his sake. And that's what we mean every time we pray. For, for Jesus' sake we pray. That's what we mean. Everything we ask, we ask for the sake of Jesus. Everything we want from you, we get because 
of Jesus. Anything that you do you for us, you do for the sake of Jesus. So for the sake of Jesus, you have bound yourself to us. I can't understand why you would do that, but you have bound yourself to us. And having bound yourself to us, Father, you will sustain us. Teach us to trust you in the most troublesome times. Teach us to trust you now when times are easier. It's hard to trust when times are easy, but teach us to trust you now so that when hard times come, we'll have a backlog of knowing a faithful God. We can count on you because you're a God of steadfast love. And once again, everything we ask, we ask for the sake of our Savior, for he alone is worthy. Amen. I don't know. I'm I'm winging all this, Bill. So. <laughs> what did you mean?